you have your Bibles, please join me for this reading. James 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray before we start this morning. Father in heaven, we do come before you as your people with grateful hearts for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who was our substitute, who died for our sins and raises us to life in him and is seated as the right hand of you in heaven. He has given us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you will guide us as we look at your word this morning, that you would teach us, that you would help us be our teacher, be our comforter. And Father, we ask that in so doing that we might worship you through this message in your word, that we will struggle with it, that we will apply it to our lives, that it will be implanted deep within us and that we would live it out all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So in your bulletins you have as the title for this message this morning, Warning to the Rich. But as I've done before, I'm calling an audible. So this week as I was going through the text, and it's a, it's a difficult text. You heard it read just a moment ago. It's a scathing message that James is putting forth. And so as I was meditating on this late yesterday, um, something came to mind. A passage in Matthew 13, Jesus gives a parable. He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Well, as that came to mind, I thought about the close of verse 3 in our text. It says, You have laid up treasure in the last days. So here's the audible. I've entitled this message, Where is Your Treasure? Where is your treasure? We'll talk about being rich and and the rich. But really for us, where is our treasure? That's the ultimate question that's being raised in this text when you get down to it. James wrote this short little epistle probably around 42 A.D., Many scholars believe it's the first of the writings in the New Testament. Maybe Mark's Gospel is equally early. We know that James is writing to these 12 tribes that are dispersed. 
One of the things we have to think about is James probably knew a lot of these Jewish Christians. They're dispersed from Jerusalem. Probably shortly after Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is stoned, persecution comes and they're scattered. James probably knew many of these people. Some may be an extended family, cousins. Others he may have seen come to faith. Maybe he discipled them. Maybe he led them to the faith. But they, they have left Jerusalem and they've gone out. And so as he's writing, there is a bit of pastoral, brotherly love for them. If you read through this letter, you will notice 16 times James says, brothers, or my brothers, or my beloved brothers. He has an affection for them. As hard as the messages have been throughout this entire epistle, their message is given with love. And so this message this morning is no different. He will touch on the rich. But one thing that I want you to know about is this. He knows these Christians. He knows that they're suffering. He knows that they're persecuted. He knows that they need to hear the Word of God and how to conduct themselves, how to behave in this harsh and fallen world. He promotes their faith that it would be steadfast, that it would be proven through trials and through temptations, that they may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He's talking about sanctification throughout this letter. And he cautions them when it comes to faith, don't be doubting. Don't be double-minded. Don't be unstable. James is trying to put across to these Christians, you should live an undivided life. You should be united with Christ, so much so that you are in the world, but not of the world. People will see a difference about you. And so he addresses things that stand out. He says, have no partiality. Have a faith that actually works. It's active. It does things. It ministers to others. It shows that your faith really works. So these are the things that he talks about coming up to the latter part of his book. And then he changes tack. In chapter 4, verse 13, you'll notice in the previous verse it says, my brothers, but it starts a new paragraph and it does something different. It says, come now. And in the Greek, that means, listen. And then he says, you who say that we'll go to such and such a town and we'll trade and we'll do such and such. Don't be arrogant. You need to understand that you're united with Christ. You should say, if the Lord wills. And then it comes to chapter 5. And this scathing message. Come now, you rich. Come now, you rich. James is not speaking to those within the church. He's speaking to unbelievers. 
It's kind of like this. You know at home and you'll have a conversation with your wife or a friend or something like that and then you'll begin to go off on a little rant. Maybe you'll talk about another political party that's not your own. Maybe you'll talk about situations in the world. Your voice will raise a little bit and you'll go through this little bit of rant. And none of those people are here that you're talking about. You know how that is. Well, James is doing that here. But he does have a purpose for why he's doing this. He will allude to in chapter 5 that we are in the last days. We're in the end times. That Christ is coming. And this scathing message is to stir up within us a motivation to be steadfast. And he's going to talk about three things that are extremely important for us as Christians to do. He's already given us some things. Show no partiality. Have a faith that works. Bridle the tongue. He's got those things. But in the last days, there's three things in chapter 5 that he talks about. Three priorities for the Christian. We'll take one today, one next week, and one the week after. He's going to talk about possessions. He's going to talk about patience. And he's going to talk about prayer. Those are three things that are important that James communicates to this dispersed church. Because they're the three things that we struggle with the most. Possessions, patience, and prayer. He's going to say to continue and endure steadfastly to the end. These are three things that you need to be mindful of. So I want to talk about or ask four questions of this text this morning for us to consider. And before I ask these questions, I don't want you to just think in your mind and give the pat answer. Okay, that, yeah, I'm there. No, I'm there. I want you to consider these things. I want you to meditate upon these questions. So here's the four questions that we're going to address in this text this this morning. What do you live for? Do you live for the present or do you live for the future? What do you live for? Do you live for the present or for the future? Question two. What do you trust in the most? What do you trust in the most? Number three. What would the world say about you and your life? What would the world say about you and your life as a Christian? And then finally, the last question, what does your life say about you in the way that it's lived? What does your life say about you in the way in which it is lived? So where is our treasure I'm going to look at the text and kind of go back and forth. There's an interesting commentary series, uh, the NIV commentary series, and if you know how it's laid out, they'll talk about the original context, they'll talk about a bridging of the context, and they'll talk about a contemporary application. And so we're going to kind of go back and forth as we look at the text and, and talk about these, these questions. James is bringing forth this scathing remark toward the rich because he wants his brothers to know 
that he know that God knows exactly what they're going through. He knows that the poor are oppressed. He knows that Christians are persecuted. He knows that there are afflictions in this life. He knows that there's trials, there's temptation. God knows it all. There's nothing that is a surprise unto him. The psalmist says in Psalm 73, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They do not trouble as others. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their hearts overflow. They scoff. They speak. But God knows. God knows. So let me ask this, when it comes to that first question that we want to look at. What do you live for? Do you live for the present or do you live for the future? When I say the word rich or wealthy, what do you think of? You think of Elon Musk? Do you think of Jeff Bezos? Do you think of Bill Gates? Do you think of maybe when you were a a boy or a girl in school, remember the big four? J.P. Morgan, Carnegie, Vanderbilt, and Rockefeller? Do you know in real dollars, they they were far more wealthy than an Elon Musk is today or a Jeff Bezos? John D. Rockefeller in inflationary dollars, they say, would be a net worth of over $400 billion today. So when I talk about the rich and ask you about the rich, what do you think of? You think of those people? Or does your mind then begin to drift and think, oh, but if I had money, can I make a confession to you? (laughs) Sometimes I'll go down uh, to Dallas. We'll meet up with the Browns occasionally and have a meal and some fellowship together. And we'll come back north on 75, I-75. And there's a billboard there. And if you're traveling along and if you've gone along that, you'll, you'll know that billboard. It's a billboard for the lottery. It's a billboard that says Mega Millions and Powerball. Okay? In bright colors. And what catches your eye, at least it does mine, this is my confession, is when those numbers are pretty big underneath. I think the Mega Millions, when I looked yesterday for this week, is like 440 million. And my mind begins to drift. Thinking about wealth. Thinking about riches. Oh boy, I could do so much good with that. I start telling myself, maybe I should buy a ticket. I could change the world. James is saying, come now you rich. It's not that riches are bad. There have been wealthy people that are Christian. You may know some. Abraham was rich. He was so rich that he and his nephew Lot had to separate because they had so much wealth. Job. 
even though he lost everything. If you go to Job chapter 42, God restores it all even more abundantly than He had the first time around. But riches didn't control them. So again I ask, what do you live for? Do you live for the present? Or do you live for the future? Many of us will go, I live for the future. I'm looking forward to Christ's second coming. But let's look and analyze our lives. What do you live for? What does your calendar look like? Do you fill up your calendar with all kinds of things? Not that anything is bad, but do you have your weekend getaway already planned? Do you have this time out to go to dinner? Do you have other things that you've, you've planned that aren't necessarily kingdom-minded at all? How many things in our lives that we use money for have any bearing on a kingdom focus? So again, I ask, what do you live for? You live for the present or you live for the future? The present might say, you know what? My car's getting kind of old. It's got 85,000 miles on it. Maybe I should get a new one. There's all these ads and promoting and you can get this good finance rate and everything like that. And I'll get caught up in a shiny new car. Living for the present. Wanting that extra status. Wanting that extra toy. And by living for the present. Went through my closet the other day. I have more than one closet. I got a closet for spring and summer clothes, and I've got a closet for fall and winter clothes. I'm, I'm, I'm reading through this, and it's talking about garments that are moth-eaten. I happened to look it was a little while ago. Some of those clothes that are in my closet are moth-eaten. How many pairs of, how many suits, how many sets of clothing do we need to have? I'm just asking the question, are we living for the present or are we living for the future? What are we doing with our monies? Brothers and sisters, we may think that we live paycheck to paycheck. We may think that we're poor. We, we live in the richest country in the world. The richest country in the world. You know what the average worldwide salary is? And this is a bit inflated. $18,000 a year. $18,000 a year. Afghanistan, $1,500 a year in U.S. dollars. I remember in 1996, I did a mission trip and went to Jamaica. And as we went to Jamaica, I remember meeting a pastor down there and he and his wife. They had no running water. They had an outhouse out in the back. They had a pump that they could pump water. And they were content because they had Christ. I came back from that mission trip thinking, I am the most wealthiest man in the world. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, all that passed. So I ask again, do we live for the present or do we live for the future? 
How do we live for the future? It's giving of our time. Yes, it's giving of our money. Using our spiritual gifts. That becomes the priority for the Christian. How we live. So what do you live for? You live for the present? Or do you live for the future? Let's talk about the second question here. What do you trust in most? What do you trust in most? I know the pat answer. I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do. And I'm sure you do as well. But when you live day to day, your life, what do you trust in? How many of you check your bank account regularly? Do you have a level of bank account where if it goes under that, you begin to get a little anxious? Do you look at your stocks if you have stocks? Your 401k, do you watch that religiously? Are these the things that you're trusting in for safety, for security? When Gail and I got married in 1984, we took a U-Haul, we got married here in Dallas, and we went to California. That's where my first job was. We had very little, almost nothing. I look back at what we made. She had a job in advertising. I had my first job out there as well. We made about a fourth of what we make today. About a fourth. But can I tell you, through all the years that we've been married, Gail and I have never lacked. Ever. I've been laid off before. Even at that time, faithful provision by God is made. I remember going to seminary, being here, and going, I'm not sure how... I'm going to pay for all of this. In my first semester, I was praying, Lord, You've called me to do this. Provide. And someone in this congregation did. So what do you trust in? Do you take everything to the Lord in prayer? Or, or do you trust in that bank account? Do you trust in those stocks? Do you trust in the things that you have? The fallacy, James says, it, it all goes away. There were three things during this period of time that was considered wealth for the rich. Grain, garments, and gold. Grain, garments, and gold. And James says here in this text, your riches, he's referring to grain there, food, have rotted. He says, your garments are moth-eaten. And he says, your silver and gold have corroded. Rust. Now we know silver and gold don't rust. James's point is this. All that stuff that you stockpile, 
all that stuff that you hoard, all that stuff that you try to build up to make yourself safe and secure, feel powerful, feel invincible, all of it goes away. Kevin DeYoung says this, you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Your treasures can't go with you. They're left behind. When it all comes down to it, it's you before Christ. That's it. So what do you trust in? What do you trust in? Money is an easy one to trust in. I'll confess that. I get uncomfortable with certain bank account levels. I do. Or when you have that repair that comes in. The AC unit goes out. Those aren't cheap. Right? Car's out of warranty. You get a $2,500 bill for that. And you have to pay it. And then you start to get a little uncomfortable. Or do you, you go to the Lord in prayer? George Mueller ran orphanages. His biography is one I highly, highly recommend. That man was a man of prayer. He prayed for everything. Everything. He said, Lord, You've saved me. You've provided for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm going to trust You with everything else. Countless entries in his biography over and over and over again where God provided milk, bread, monies, etc. So what do you trust in? The rich had trusted in their riches. And he's saying it gets you nowhere. There's an interesting meme that has Peter at the pearly gates. And a man comes up and he's pulling a bag. Peter says, what's in the bag? He says, it's my gold. It's my treasure. Peter goes, you mean you brought pavement? Think about it. Streets of gold. All right. Question number three. What would the world say about your life? What would the world say about your life? When they see the way that you live. Talk about the rich at the beginning and what do you think about? How many remember the, the old show, although I didn't watch it? Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. And you watch that. It talks about people in their cars and their jets and their vacation homes and restaurants that you can't even afford to get a cup of coffee in. What, did the, what would the world say about you? Are you one that keeps up with the Joneses? Do you always have a new car? Replace you your furniture every so often? Always have a new wardrobe? You're living for the present, not for the future? What would the world say about you? You know, when we elect elders or deacons, 
one of the things that's mentioned is what is what is your report from those outside the church? What do they say about you? Are you a man or a woman of integrity? Do do you live what you proclaim? If you're a follower of Jesus, you'll remember he says foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. But he did. He found places. So the question is, what would the world say about you? Would they say, that person's benevolent? That person's generous? That person devotes himself to the body of Christ? You know, that person is always reaching out to people in that community. He loves God and he loves others or she. Would the world say that about you or are you just another consumer? What would the world say about your life? Do you hoard? Do you practice luxury living like it's written in our text? The prophet Abbas spoke against Judah and against Israel. And in chapter 4, he gives a scathing announcement. He says that Israel is living like cows in Bashan. That they're just eating and getting fat. Gluttony is the picture that you're supposed to see. That the women are calling for their servants to bring wine. Life's a party. It's luxurious. That's what they're living for, the here and the now. And Amos gives them a scathing message. He calls them to repent. To quit oppressing the poor. In the Old Testament time and even in the New Testament during the time the Scripture's written, it really was more of a zero-sum game when it came to wealth. You were a have or you were a have-not. You were one of, the, one of the two. It's not like today. Today is different. There is wealth creation. There is a middle class. But, but still, there was have and have-nots. Are you a bit of a have and not concerned with the have-nots? Let's go to the final question. Final question. What does my life say about who I am by the way that I live it? Do you use your wealth, the wealth that you have, for the good of the kingdom? Are you a vessel or are you a vault? Are you a vessel or are you a vault? Are you a vault in that it's all yours? Mine, mine, mine. Or is it a vessel? 
They say that George Mueller had more than a million dollars that came in one hand and went right out the other. He was a vessel. Are you a vessel? Is money, is riches, is wealth, is that a tool for you? Or is it what you trust in? Is it a tool to be used for the glory of God? Or do you want to hold it back? Remember the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12? What did he say? I'm gonna, I've got so much stuff, I've got to build more silos, more grain. Put it all away. And what is the end of the parable? Tonight, your very soul is required of you. It all goes away. What does your life say about you? If people could look at your spending habits, what would they see? What would they see? Did your parents or did your grandparents ever teach you For every dollar that you make, put 10% in savings. Give 10% to the church. And then with the rest, spend it wisely. Did you ever get that kind of advice? Did you ever hear that in the church? Many of us go, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's easy to do when it's $1. But what happens when it's $100? Do you get a little uncomfortable with that math? What if it's a thousand dollars? All of a sudden you go, hmm, maybe 10% is 8%. Maybe it's six. Do you know what the average giving, and this, this is not scientific, this is just data, pure, pure Pew Research. Members within churches, what percentage they actually give? 4%. 4%. Some of us go, well, I give more than that. But do you give a tithe? Do you give a tithe? Do you think that the work that's done here just happens that money grows on trees? Do you think that we just go to the bank and pull out money to give to all the missionaries that we support? For Jake and I's salary? For what we want to pay to a youth pastor? What we want to pay to the next worship arts director? For what we pay for maintenance for the building? It requires funding. So here's, here's the challenge to you. Here's the challenge to you. Consider a tithe. I know for many of us, it'll be sacrificial. But consider a tithe. As I said, when Gail and I first got married, we have never lacked. Ever. You know, one of the worst years, worst years for us, my second year in seminary, here's confession, 2009. Okay? Wasn't working a whole lot. Gala was not making much money. And here was the reasoning in my head that I repented of later. I'm going to seminary. So what I would give to the church, 
I'm going to kind of give to the school. How many of us do that? How many of us reason the way we utilize our funds in our lives and justify that? I know this is getting personal. I know it's uncomfortable. I'm doing the same thing. I'm going to discontinue my cable. I'm going to discontinue spending that I really don't need. And I'm going to give more to the church. That's your first priority, believer, is to the church. You may give to causes outside of that, and you're more than welcome to do that. But you're first and foremost to give to this body of believers. That we might make disciples. That we might mature people to do the work of ministry. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy Chapter 6, he says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We need to have a proper view of riches. And then it says this, you know this verse. Verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. A love of money is the root of of all kinds of evil. J.C. Ryle said this, you can love money and not have it. And you can have money and not love it. We're called to live lives that reflect Christ in everything that we do. And when it comes to money, to riches, we of all people need to be good stewards. J.C. Ryle also made this comment here with regards to money, and it's true. Listen to these words. Ryle says, Money, in truth, is one of the most unsatisfying of possessions. It takes away some cares, no doubt, but it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. There is trouble in the getting of it. There is anxiety in the keeping of it. There are temptations in the use of it. There is guilt in the abuse of it. There is sorrow in the losing of it. There is perplexity in the disposing of it. Two-thirds of all the strifes, quarrels, and lawsuits in the world arise from one simple cause, money. Money. What do you live for? 
the present or the future. Christ is coming again. What do you trust in? Do you trust solely in the saving, efficacious work of the Lord Jesus Christ or your wealth? What does the world say about you and the way that you handle your money? How do they see you? Are you a good steward? And then your own life, what does it testify about you? I pray that all of us would consider this hard message. It's a hard message. But brothers and sisters, God is faithful. Always has been, always will be. This call is for us as a church to be obedient, good stewards of all the gifts that He gives us. James says every perfect gift, every good gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. We should be thankful, knowing His faithfulness towards us, giving back to Him for the goodness of His kingdom, the work of His kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank You that we can come and open Your Word and even when the messages are hard, that we know that You are loving, that You are gracious, that You are merciful, and that You give to us abundantly, materially. Father, let us be good stewards and let us worship You through our giving for the glory and the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.